couple of announcements just uh, primarily to uh, continue to pray for Camp Arete. And this uh, begins this coming weekend, next weekend. So you can be in prayer for them and all the last-minute details that they have to uh, take care of in order to uh, bring the camp over. And I did hear from uh, Jeff today, and I think that uh, uh, he said that they have a lot more people going up from the Houston area than they had anticipated or that they had last year even. I think they had expected it to double, and it almost tripled. So they have a lot of lot of people going, which is which is great to see how how this is uh, uh, getting established and taking off. So we need to be need to continue to to uh, be in prayer for uh, for that ministry and all of the needs and logistics and everything that go on uh, in any ministry. I mean that's just a uh, one of the things that uh, I'm just been very grateful for from the very beginning. We had a great logistical support team here and continue to have that. And every now and then, people who are out there in um, uh, listening to videos or listen, live streaming or whatever in virtual in the virtual congregation volunteer various uh, things for one thing or another to help out, and that's always appreciated uh, as well, especially if they have uh, skills related to the internet. So that's been very helpful. The Lord's provided a lot of great, tremendous uh, people who uh, help out uh, uh, in various ways here. So, um, how shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer. Scripture teaches that if we are out of fellowship, which means if we've committed sin, walking, then we immediately begin to walk according to the power of the sin nature. Scripture says if we confess our sins, then God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So the instant that we confess our sins, then we are cleansed and we are restored to fellowship. We resume a walk by the Holy Spirit and it's only under his guidance, direction, leadership described by a variety of phrases in the scripture, abiding in Christ, walking by the Spirit, walking in truth, walking in the light. It's on the basis of this that we are strengthened in our Christian life and we grow and mature. So uh, we'll begin with a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to make sure you're in fellowship, and I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for all of your many, many grace blessings to us, the way in which you take care of this congregation, provide for so many needs. Father, we know that there are many people within the congregation who face uh, medical challenges who are facing uh, some who face uh, job challenges but but mostly it's uh, uh, just different different ways different areas of of ongoing uh, health problems or in some cases serious ones we pray that you would strengthen them encourage them they might be a real witness uh, as they face these challenges to others around them father we are grateful for your grace, that it's all about grace, that grace means we do nothing whatsoever to earn or deserve your fair favor, and that we can do nothing to earn or deserve your favor, that, that that is all on the basis of who Jesus Christ is and what he has accomplished for us on the cross. And Father, we thank you for a salvation that is based on faith alone, that all that is required is that we believe that Jesus died on the cross for our sins, and that by believing we might have eternal life. Father, we pray that as we study tonight, that as we continue, we might be uh, strengthened from our study of your word, come to understand our salvation, the faith basis of our salvation a little more clearly, and that we might come to understand uh, how God the Holy Spirit was working in a unique way during the transition stage at the beginning of the church age. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to 
uh, Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8. And we continue our study here. It's been at least a month since we've been uh, in Acts, and so it's important to kind of review a little bit what has happened in Acts. Now, what happens here in this chapter as we're going to finish up looking at Simon and the conversion of Simon and then Simon's immediate uh, uh, fall into confusion and into sin and look at a few things related to more clearly understanding the gospel. And then we'll get into the next section, which is, and both of these are tied together in terms of, of uh uh, showing the expansion of the church, going back to Acts chapter 1, verse 8, where Jesus told the disciples that they were to be his witnesses from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and then to the uttermost part of the earth. So the Acts is about the birth and the expansion of the church as it is overseen by the ministry of God the Holy Spirit. So they move out from finally from Jerusalem, and we learn in the beginning of chapter 8 that this is because persecution breaks out in Jerusalem against the, uh, against the Christians. And at this stage, the church is still 100% a Jewish church. Now, as we get into this chapter, there's an expansion, as I've talked about previously, there's an expansion north into Samaria, which is uh, the area that we see outlined uh, in, in the square. And when I talked about this the last time, there was an academic understanding of Samaria, and now there's a, an experiential understanding of Samaria because we have been there. And it truly is, a, when it talks about the hill country of Ephraim, Ephraim is the Hebrew pronunciation, when it talks about the hill country of of Ephraim, it really is a hill country. We were all, uh, I think, somewhat surprised uh, as we just driving out from Jerusalem. It was just uh, maybe 10 minutes, and we were really in some extremely uh, hilly, rugged terrain, not unlike, I think many were from being from Texas, immediately identified it with the hill country, but it was a higher elevation. It was about uh, from 2,500 feet to about 3,300 feet. And so it was much more of a rugged terrain and mountainous terrain than you have in the um, in the hill country of Texas. And so as this persecution broke out in Jerusalem, the believers left all but the apostles, and probably there were a few others who stayed to help and aid them, but they uh, they they were scattered. Now, I want you to notice something as we go through this chapter. There's two basic events that are described in this chapter. The first is this movement north from Jerusalem into Samaria. And the key uh, player is Philip. Philip was one of the six who was chosen to help with the distribution of uh, financial aid to the Hellenistic widows. Uh, in Acts chapter 6, or one of the seven, rather, in Acts chapter 6. And he is, um, uh, you never, as I pointed out when we went through that, you never see them really help with that distribution. They're more involved with ministry, but only two that we know of uh, that we have any real content about, and that's Stephen and Philip. Stephen was martyred in the previous chapter. Philip is the only, is the one, only one that is mentioned beyond that. Uh, there's also another one that was mentioned back there, who is Nicanor, and Nicanor is a proselyte. <clears throat> and as a uh, proselyte, uh, he's, I mean, excuse me, Nicholas, uh, in, in Acts chapter 6, verse 5, the last one mentioned is Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. Now, a proselyte is, and we'll see this in some more detail as we get into the second part of the chapter, a proselyte uh, Actually, in Judaism at this time, there were about four different levels, probably meant a proselyte of the gate. And a proselyte of the gate was someone who had uh, was pretty much accepting all of Judaism. They believed in one God and one God alone, but they uh, <coughs> stopped short uh, of circumcision. There was uh, other designations. There were God-fearers. We'll see that come up in uh, uh, Acts chapter 10 with Cornelius. And then you had uh, 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 
then you had a proselyte of the gate, and then you had a full proselyte, and this was someone who was a Gentile who uh, fully came under the Mosaic law. Uh, and so these were the different, uh, the different degrees, the different levels uh, of, of involvement. You had a God-fearer, a proselyte of the gate, and a proselyte. And so here you have Nicanor is mentioned as a proselyte. He's not considered a Gentile anymore. Let's think about the big picture in, in Acts again. We start off in Jerusalem, then we're going to Samaria and Judea, and then we're going to go outside of that once Paul becomes saved, Saul of Tarsus, once he goes to uh, Antioch, and there the church is still Jewish because it's not until Acts 10 that Luke makes a significant emphasis on the fact that this Cornelius and what occurs at Cornelius' house, household in Caesarea Maritima, Caesarea by the sea, is the first inclusion of Gentiles into this new entity known as the church. So Nicanor, or Nicholas rather, is no longer considered a Gentile. He has become a full proselyte. When we get into this chapter in Acts 8, as I pointed out, in dealing with uh, the Samaritans, I pointed out that they were sort of a mixed uh, breed because of the repopulation uh, policy of the Assyrians when they conquered the northern kingdom of Israel in 722, that what they would do is they would take a conquered population and then they would resettle them into different areas of the Assyrian Empire so that they could no longer pull together, organize themselves together in terms of an armed revolt. And so they would take, when they conquered Israel, they would take uh, the Jews that were there, they moved them to different parts of the Assyrian Empire, and then they took people, other conquered peoples from other parts of the Assyrian Empire and moved them into uh, the area of the northern kingdom of Israel so that there was a lot of intermarriage and the, the they, they weren't a, considered a purely Jewish people, but they're not really considered Gentile either. But there, and once again, I emphasize the fact that as we looked at the location here, whether we were talking about uh, Sebast, which is a, a city known as Samaria, but that Sebast was how it was known at the time of Jesus in the first century. It had become a Roman colony uh, in the um, in, in Acts eight when when we talk about the city that um, Philip went to. It doesn't identify it; it just says he went to. Uh, a city of Samaria, and most believe it was probably this city, Sikar, which is located uh, near, uh, uh, or Sebast is also, is, I mean, Sikar and Sebast, Sebast is like, uh, is also known today as Nablus, uh, which is from the uh, uh, Latin word uh, Neapolis, which was also a word that was used to refer to it. Neapolis, uh, Arabs in Arabic, they can't pronounce a P, so it's changed to a B, so you get Neabolus or Nablus, meaning new city. And so it wasn't, uh, it, uh, that was the Roman city, but Sikar today is really included within Nablus because it is, uh, it's grown so much. I mean, it's a large metropolitan sprawl. Sikar was where Jesus met with the woman at the well in John chapter 4. This was Jewish, whereas the other cities, Sebastor, Samaria, um, and then, um, uh, that area was known as uh, uh, the as primarily a Roman city, and so that would be dominated by Gentiles. We're not talking about a Gentile conversion in either one of these sections here. Even the Ethiopian eunuch is not considered a Gentile. Well, wait a minute, he's from Ethiopia, but Luke doesn't treat him as a as a Gentile. He is coming to Jerusalem in order to observe. Uh, the rituals at the temple in one of the annual uh, feast days. And so he is probably, as we'll see, also a proselyte of the gate, not one who was, although there's some, some that think he possibly was Jewish because of the uh, number of, uh, there's a certain segment of Ethiopians that have been identified since uh, in modern times since the 1700s, but in the ancient world it was also known that there were a number of uh, those down in Ethiopia that claimed descent from Jews that had moved down there, and there is the legend among the uh, among the Ethiopians that 
the Queen of Sheba was from that area, and that she had uh, had a had a child, a son by uh, <clears throat> by Solomon, and that that was the royal lineage that trace, was traced all the way down to Haile Selassie, who was the last king of Ethiopia. That that royal lineage was unbroken, and so this is the basis for the group that was known as also as Falasha in uh, Ethiopia and Ethiopia. And when we were in Israel. Uh, the group didn't go by here, but I went by one of the uh, uh, absorption centers where these Ethiopic Jews were brought up from Ethiopia back during the 1990s, fully established that they were of Jewish descent. And so uh, this is it's clear that there was a Jewish community down there. So whether he was Jewish or whether it's not likely, he was probably a... Um, uh, 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 proselyte of the gate, but both of these groups, the Samaritans and the Ethiopian, the emphasis that Luke has is on the expansion of the church, and in these two groups, they are not fully Jewish groups, but they're not considered Gentiles either, and so it's not until Acts 10 that we get into a look at the Gentiles. Now, in Acts 14 through 17, we have the story of the um, uh, Peter and John coming to Samaria. They had, there has already been a uh, response to the gospel. I don't have this verse in here on the screen, but if you look at the chapter and just read along with me, <clears throat> we're introduced to Simon in verse 9. He's a certain man named Simon who previously practiced sorcery, so he's into the demonic arts this is not just sorcery. He's not into leisure domain. He's not David Copperfield. He's not just doing um, sort of a subterfuge. He is he is uh, probably involved in a form of demonism. He, he uh, previously practiced sorcery in the city and astonished the people of Samaria, claiming that he was someone great. So he was identifying himself according to the title that he used. He was called himself the great power of God at the end of verse 10. This was a title. He was claiming for himself a descent or at least incarnation of God himself, not like Jesus, who's the son of God, second person of Trinity, but he was claiming to be God himself, as I pointed out when we went through that. And so he had really impressed everybody in the area. He's widely known. He's infamous. And when uh, Philip comes and he is evangelizing, that's the Greek word underlying most of the time that you see the word preached used here. It's evangelizo, evangelizo, which means to proclaim the gospel or to evangelize. Um, the response is that the people believe. Notice verse 12, but when they believed Philip as he evangelized, the things concerning the kingdom of God. So he's in proclaiming, teaching the things related to the kingdom of God, the gospel, and this is what they believe. Now, I want you to pay attention to exactly how that is written. When they, that is the Samaritans, that's the subject of the verb. The reason I'm doing this is because I want you to see how, how clear the text really is because I want to kind of warn you a little bit of how confusion seeks, seeps into the church on, in areas like this. They refers to the Samaritans. They believe Philip as he preaches the things concerning the kingdom of God, which is roughly analogous to the gospel at this point, and the name of Jesus Christ, and both men and women are baptized. This is water baptism as a sign that they have... Uh, accepted Jesus as the Messiah. It is part of the conversion, uh, uh, overt ritual indicating the conversion. Now, do you have any doubts in your mind that the, the group that referred to as they, who believed what Peter taught, I mean what Philip taught, are regenerate at this point, that they're justified and their destiny is heaven? See, there's no doubt whatsoever. The term believe is used over... Uh, uh, I think it's over 35 times in the gospel, the verb, in, in, I'm not in the gospel, in Acts, is used over 35 times. And every single time, you can look it up in a concordance or do a search through one of the Bible search programs, every single time it is it talks about the response to the gospel message. 
And all that is required of a person to be saved is to believe. This is the Gospel of John. Uh, John writes towards the end of the Gospel uh, that, that these are written that you might, what? Believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, not by believing, not by continuing to believe, not by believing and being baptized, not by believing and uh, having works consistent with that belief, but simply belief alone. Over 95 times in the Gospel of John, you have this one verb mentioned as the sole condition for eternal life, simply to believe. Now, believe doesn't mean to commit. You don't get that out of, a, out of any, any dictionary. Believe means to accept something to be true, to trust it, to rely upon that as being true. You accept it as true. You believe that it's true. You trust it as being true. You're relying upon it uh, as being uh, a true and accurate statement. Some people come along and it, it preaches well, or at least it sounds like it, that ah, the problem we have is people have a head faith and not a heart faith. Well, the problem with that is that they're mixing metaphors of Scripture. Heart in the Scripture is simply used as a metaphor of the soul. And it primarily has as its meaning probably 75% of the time in Scripture a reference to the thinking part of the soul, not the emotional part of the soul. So uh, a head belief is considered to be the intellect, and heart is juxtaposed in that kind of a sentence to something else. It's not really emotion because emotion, you can't believe with emotion. Belief is not an emotion. Belief is purely and simply an intellectual activity. It involves an understanding of what it is that you are believing. You can't believe what you don't understand. Now, we may not fully comprehend what it is that we're believing. We believe that Jesus rose from the dead. I cannot fully comprehend how that took place, but I can comprehend it enough to where I understand what it means to be resurrected from the dead. I have no doubt that it means that a person is dead, 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 and the next minute they're as alive as they could ever be. That's resurrection from the dead. Now, I can't explain the dynamics of the process, what happens medically, but I can understand what took place, and I can choose to believe that or to not believe that. I don't understand how God could regenerate the womb of a 90-year-old woman. I mean, I've read medical doctors' analysis of what takes place in the reproductive organs of a woman and what would have to take place in order for them to give birth again, especially when uh, 20 or 30 or 40 years has gone by since menopause. And it is just amazing what God did in order to regenerate the womb of Sarah so that she could give birth to Isaac. It's, it, it's a miracle. I cannot explain how that could happen, but I can understand and, and choose to believe whether or not a 95-year-old woman who had been uh, incapable of bearing children now could have a child. I can believe that. So belief doesn't mean we understand, when I say that we understand something, it doesn't mean we understand it comprehensively or exhaustively, but it does mean that we, we understand the general, uh, general concept that is expressed in the belief statement. And so every, every statement uh, that you believe, everything that you believe can be expressed in what is called by philosophers as a propositional statement. And a propositional statement is really a technical term in philosophy, and a proposition is basically an indicative mood sentence. It's a statement about reality that can either be proven or disproven. A question, is it raining outside? Can you prove that wrong or right? You can't. It's a question. Go to the store and get some milk to bring home. Can you prove that to be right or wrong? Neither, because it's a command. So you can't prove a question to be right or wrong. You can't prove a question to be right or wrong. But if I said it's raining outside, you can prove that or disprove it. It's provable or disprovable. If I said there's a God who exists in heaven, can you prove that or not? In some sense, you can, eventually. 
it will be demonstrated to be true one way or the other. It, but you may not see it right now. You may not have in empirical evidence of it, but you hear it from authority, and so you can believe it or not true. And it always amazes me about some people who are too smart for their own good or think they are. It's nothing more than arrogance, saying, well, I'm only going to believe something that I can see or touch or personally experience. Well, that's just the most insane thing I've ever heard because every one of us believes thousands and thousands of things to be true that we have no evidence of whatsoever. And we grow up learning that way. When, when you're a little child and your parents begin to teach you things, you just take it by faith that that's the way it is. Now, later on, there are some of those things that can be true, proven to be uh, correct or incorrect. But there are many things that we all believe and about life that cannot be tr- proven in an empirical sense to be true or false. But statements such as Jesus is the Messiah are statements that you can validate or invalidate. And there are some people who, despite evidence, they want to invalidate that statement. But see, there are always people that no matter how much evidence you present, they're not going to believe something. I mean, just look at the, um, the jury that did not convict O.J. Simpson. I mean, what, what part of the DNA don't you understand? I mean, it was, it was extremely, extremely clear what was going on there. And yet some people, for whatever reason, just choose that they're not going to believe it. And we've all heard the sentence, uh, don't confuse me with facts, my mind is made up. And that is unfortunately how a lot of people are. They set their mind on something, and you're, you and I could never convince them and it's interesting. I've never done this. I've always wanted to, in a in a context of, of, of talking to somebody about the Lord, is ask them, well, what would it take for you to be convinced that God exists or that Jesus was God? Because Jesus performed not just the miracles that we're told about in Scripture, but we're told in uh, various texts that he performed numerous miracles, and he performed the kinds of -of one-of-a-kind miracles that can't be counterfeited, Uh, miracles such as the one recorded in John 9 where he gave sight to the blind man. Now, that's a significant miracle that's recorded because uh, according to the uh, rabbinical thought at the time, that was one of the unique signs of the Messiah that could not be counterfeited, could not be duplicated, in any way, shape, or form. And it would be a clear understanding that the person who did that uh, was the Messiah. But then the issue is, do you believe it or not? So I'm talking about belief here to remind you where this rabbit trail is going. And it's not a rabbit trail. The belief is related to a sentence that is, uh, that is uh, provable or falsifiable. It's related to a proposition. Jesus is the Messiah. You either can believe it or you cannot believe it. There may be evidence and there is evidence to support that claim. And this is what John writes about in the Gospel of John, that he says these are written, that is, these signs. If you look at the previous verse, he says that Jesus did many other signs and he did so much that there were not, that if it was all recorded, there would not be enough books in the world to record them all. Uh, he said, then it says, these are written, these are recorded, these signs, the signs that he writes about in his book, these are recorded that you might believe that Jesus is Hamashiach, the, the Messiah, the anointed one, the promised, prophesied Savior from the Old Testament. These are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, and that by believing, nothing else, it's a clear, standalone uh, condition by believing you may have life in his name. So the point I'm making is that in the Gospel of John and in Acts, Gospel of John uses the verb believe nine, over 95 times, over 35 times. Luke uses it in the context of Luke. It is the sole condition for regeneration, for justification, for eternal salvation, moving from spiritual death to spiritual life. And so Verse 12, we read, when they believed Philip as the, it preached the, concerning the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. We have no doubt whatsoever that those who believed 
were saved. Then we go to verse 13. Carefully read with me what it says. Then Simon himself also believed. And it's just as simple in the Greek text. There's nothing else added. There's no funny little word that's used there. It's just a very simple statement that as part of the larger group that believed and was baptized, we have Simon himself, just an emphatic pronoun there, Simon himself also believed. So the the word that is used there, the conjunction uh, chi, is just a word to add to the previous group. So there's nothing there to set this apart as something unusual. It's that uh, from the large group that believed, Luke is now focusing on this one individual, Simon, that he also believed, and when he was baptized, he continued with Philip. So there's a continuation there. He's following along. There's no indication there's something odd or unusual about Simon yet, and he's amazed uh, when he saw the miracles and the signs that were done by Philip. Now, verse 14, we read, Now when the apostles, and I think that's where I have a slide here, now when the apostles, that is, Uh, Peter and John, who were at Jerusalem, heard that Samaria had received the word of God. And again, this is a word that indicates uh, uh, belief. It's a synonym for faith, acceptance of something to be true, like in John 1.12, but as many as received him, to them gave he the power to be called the sons of God, even to those who believe on his name, Um, that they received the word of God, that is the message of God, the gospel here would be the, the, the focus of the context, They sent Peter and John to them, them being the Samaritans, who, when they had come down, so when Peter and John had come down, you always come down from Jerusalem. Jerusalem has an elevation just under, uh, I mean, about 2,500 feet. And so when you go anywhere from Jerusalem, you go down. In the United States, in English idiom, you go down if you go south, and you go up if you go north, so north is always up, right? That was a stupid little line we used to learn when I took... uh, First, first took land navigation, that's uh, map reading and compass usage in ROTC. North is always up. No matter what happens, north is always up. South is always down. That's English idiom. But in Israel, Jerusalem's up and everything else is down. So they went down from Jerusalem and prayed for them. So John and Peter prayed that they might receive the Holy Spirit. This The object of this receive is different from the object of the receive in verse 14. In verse 14, they're receiving the word of God. They're believing the message of God. Logos has about 18 different meanings. It means logic. It means the study of something. It means a word, a matter, a thing, uh, a saying, uh, all of those things. So the idea here is that they believe the message that they had heard from the apostles. But in verse 15, they haven't received the Holy Spirit, and the term there that's used for this phrase, receiving the Holy Spirit, is a term that goes right back to Acts chapter 2 and what happened with the uh, apostles when the Holy Spirit came upon them and they received the Holy Spirit in Acts 2 at Pentecost. So this is called the Samaritan Pentecost, as I pointed out. But it, it, there's, uh, there's a different order of events, as we've seen in the past, and there's no uh, speaking in languages. Why? Because of the it's involving the Samaritans, as I said the last time, and it has to do with the purpose of tongues, but that was the last lesson. Uh, verse 46, then, for as yet, that is a sort of a parenthetical explanation, for as yet he, that is the Holy Spirit, had fallen upon none of them. They had only been baptized, so this would be water baptism, in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then, that is, then, following the prayer that they might receive the Holy Spirit, they re- laid hands on them, that they being Peter and John, laid hands on them, and they, that is, the Samaritan believers, received the Holy Spirit except for Simon. Wait a minute, that's not there, is it? It's not even in any corrupted manuscript, okay? There's no exception. When they, uh, when they laid hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit, verse 18, and when Simon saw that, so he's present, he's not being singled out as one who did not receive the Holy Spirit. When Simon saw that, that through the laying on of the apostles' hands, the Holy Spirit was given, he offered them money. What's going on here? Does this mean he's not saved? Not at all. You don't have any verbiage yet that would indicate he's not saved. Stupid, carnal, sinful, yes. But 
Nothing here says he's not saved. He's doing what so many Christians do today. We see it all the time. They become saved, but they're still living in the pigsty that they were saved out of because they don't know anything. Their thinking, their values, their ideas are all shaped by the culture around them, and they don't have any biblical uh, values yet. They don't have any biblical norms and standards, and so they're st- they can, they're, their default position is still going to be back on uh, what they were before they were saved. I want you to hold your position here in Acts 8 and just turn over one book to the right to Romans, to Romans chapter 6, which we've begun our study of Romans 6. We'll continue it uh, t- uh, night after tomorrow. But I want you to know, notice what, uh, what Paul writes here. He says to these believing, these believing Romans, he says, because the problem that they've got is li- continuing to live with, in a sinful manner that is not any different from the unsaved Romans around it. He says in verse 11, Likewise, consider yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Why is he telling? He's telling believers that they need to think, realize, consider the fact that a change has taken place, and they're <clears throat> they now to think about themselves as being dead to sin. Then he makes it even more clear in the next verse by using a present imperative. He says, "Do not let sin reign in your mortal body." that you should obey its lust. In other words, it's a choice. You can choose, as apparently the Romans had been choosing, to continue to sin, continue to live as they had before they were saved. And then in verse 13, he says it another way. He says, do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you're not under law but under grace." And then he goes on to say, do you not know, in verse 16, do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness? But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine or teaching of which you were delivered, and having been set free from sin, you became slave of righteousness. However, he's telling them that... Um, that they still have a problem because, verse 22, but now having been set free from sin and having been slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness and the end of everlasting life. Uh, but the problem is that they have not been presenting themselves always to righteousness and to obedience. So as an unbeliever, you can still, I mean, as a believer, you can still sin just like you did before you were saved because you don't understand and you haven't learned the, the difference. So that's what, what I believe is going on here with, uh, with, with Simon. Now, uh, we look at this at verses 18 and 19, and he says this. He wants his power. See, he's coming out of this background of being involved in sorcery and being involved in these demonic arts where you could use money to purchase things and to be taught skills so that you could continue to uh, fool people and continue to uh, practice your your black arts in order to uh, become wealthy uh, by taking advantage of people. So now he's just transferring to this. He sees these miracles, and he's he's thinking just like an, any normal person would in terms of his own limited frame of reference. Wow, this is just like the magic I did, but it's better. I want this. He's. It's not that he's not saved. It's that he has no no knowledge. He says, give me this power also that anyone on whom I lay hands may receive the Holy Spirit. This is great stuff. I can really get rich doing this. Oh, we don't have Christians who ever think about getting rich by taking advantage of others. Oh, I don't know. Go watch a few televangelists sometime and take a look at what they're doing. Uh, there used to be one preacher, charismatic preacher back in the back in the 40s who used to come out and say that now I'm the shepherd, you're the sheep, now it's time for me to fleece the sheep. And he would say that as his prelude to taking up the offering all the time. So, yes, there are numerous people who are truly Christians but are living in sin, and they're wrong. 
But this gets a little interesting when we get to the next couple of verses. Peter says to him, well, your money perish with you because you thought that the gift of God could be purchased with money. He doesn't say because you're not saved. He says because you thought that the gift of God could be purchased with money. Now, the gift of God that he's talking about here isn't the gift of salvation. It's the gift of the Holy Spirit that's very clear from what just happened in the previous verse. So we're not talking about justification, regeneration, or or, or initial salvation. Now, where it gets a little interesting is this word perish, because it's the Greek word that is apolumi, which is related to the word usually translated eternal perishing. For example, in John 3.16, you shall have eternal life and not perish or relating to John, uh, excuse me, relating to uh, Judas Iscariot, that he's called the son of perdition, another form of that same word. So in many cases in the New Testament, it has that sense of, uh, of eternal punishment, but not always, as we'll see. And then he goes on to say, you have neither part nor portion in this manner, for your heart is not right in the sight of God. Now, what does that mean? that you have neither part nor portion. This is really key, these three words, uh, perish and part or portion. But I'm going to warn you that there are people you will read who are generally pretty good at expositing the word, and they and, and some books that I often recommend, people I recommend that don't get this or didn't get this. Now, to be fair to both of these quotes that I'm getting ready to show you, and I'm giving this to you as an exercise in uh, discernment and an exercise in critical thinking. It's always important to know some things about the people you're, you're reading and also know some dates. In the early 80s, about 1981, 82, the Bible Knowledge Commentary first came out. This is a two-volume set. We often give it to graduates in high school or college if they don't have it uh, because it is excellent in many, many ways. It's much more excellent than it would be if it were produced by Dallas Seminary today. Uh, The faculty at that time was, in my opinion, much better, much uh, more consistent theologically with one another than it is today. But there were a few aberrations uh, at that time. 1980 was when I got my THM. So I was uh, in seminary from 1976, September of 76, through uh, graduation August of uh, 1980. And uh, so that most of those who wrote what came out, they were actually writing it at that time because it takes some time to go through the manuscript of something that large, to do all of the proofreading, typesetting back in those days, and all of those different things took time. So it comes out in about, I think it was around sometime around 1982. And I know that when it came out, some of those faculty members were no longer on the, on the faculty. So the Bible knowledge commentary is generally very good. You also have to pay attention that each commentary on each book is written by a different faculty member. At the opening of the book, at the title page, it says, edited by John Walvoord and Roy Zuck. Everything that came out as official faculty production was edited by John Walvoord and Roy Zuck. That was standard operating procedure. Uh, but there are things within the commentary that I do not agree. For example, uh, John Martin, who later demonstrated that he was uh, had already given up dispensationalism but didn't have the integrity to say so at the time that he wrote the uh, commentary on Isaiah, uh, uh, denied that uh, Isaiah chapter 14 related to the fall of Satan. This has now become a popular position with different people, and there are others who have clearly refuted it. Just because there's a variety of positions and a variety of scholars take these positions doesn't mean we're agnostic. A lot of sheep in the pew get a little bit uneasy. Well, how do we know what's right? Well, you learn how to think. You learn how to evaluate evidence like a good lawyer or a good jury, and you go in and you evaluate the evidence, and you weigh the arguments on each side, and you continuously study because there's always new information that you could learn uh, that either reinforce or hurt your, your, your case, but you're always open to uh, learning and to improving your understanding of the truth. The Bible Knowledge Commentary, commentary on Acts is written by Stan Toussaint. I love Stan. 
Uh, Stan was just a great guy. He was a great teacher. He holds, he, he, he has a distinctive, I like to tell certain little stories about professors. He has a distinctive with, with, uh, uh, um, oh gosh, I can't believe I slipped my mind, with uh, uh, Char- Charles Swindoll, with Chuck Swindoll. They were both pastors of Irving Bible Church. Now, I lived in Irving at one time, but I never went to Irving Bible Church, but they were both pastors of Irving Bible Church and both got fired by the same board of, of elders. And who would think that a board of elders would ever fire Chuck Swindoll? Well, that's what happens when churches have leaders who somehow don't really get it. And so uh, uh, that, that was kind of an interesting thing. I've known Stan for years, and Stan understands free grace. Ah, but see, that's why dates are important. In ni- this, this is really written in the late 80s. And the thing that really broke open the free grace versus lordship debate, where it real, a lot of things really started to get hammered out and clarified and understood, did not occur until about 19, about the same time, 1982, when Zane Hodges wrote a book called The Gospel Under Siege. And this was just one of those groundbreaking books that became quite controversial uh, among students at Dallas Seminary, people who were committed to Calvinism really had a problem with it because it really does point out some problems with some forms of Calvinism, but not all forms of Calvinism have necessarily been of a, um, uh, of, of a uh, lordship type. But that's what's been, de- what's really developed in the 20th century, especially in American uh, American theology, but a lot of things g- g- were, were worked out. And you had young men in that group, like uh, Bob Wilkin, who later became the head of the Grace Evangelical Society. And I've known Bob for since that time in the early, early 90s. And for his doctoral dissertation, uh, Bob Wilkin wrote on the use of the word metanoia, the word for repent, in the New Testament. And groundbreaking Studies like that, I mean, this is a 300-plus page, well-researched, heavily documented doctoral dissertation. I mean, a quality doctoral dissertation usually has somewhere between an average of three to six footnotes documenting, supporting every statement that's made on every page. They're not just somebody who's expressing their opinion. They're somebody who has done in-depth analysis and research on a particular topic, and uh, Bob pointed out a number of things about the word repent, uh, which that is that it is not a word related to getting saved. If it were necessary to repent to get saved, then why does the Gospel of John never use it? So we're back to the Gospel of John. Why, are we, why do I keep going there? It's because most of us understand that the clearest gospel for the, uh, of the four Gospels written to explain the content of the Gospels, is the Gospel of John. And yet if John is the source of understanding what that key message is to getting saved, then the fact that he never uses the word repent is significant. It's not important. It's not relevant to that concept. Now, some people will come along and say, well, repent clearly means to change your mind, so it would relate to the idea of changing your mind from rejecting Christ to believing in Christ. Yes, if you want to limit it to that, uh, that could be true, but that is not primarily how it is used in Scripture. It is used of the people of God turning from disobedience to obedience. That's its primary usage uh, in the Scripture. But this is what Stan wrote. Dr. Toussaint, incidentally, I had Stan for Acts and Pauline epistles uh, <clears throat> as in my in my seminary career, and have uh, uh, greatly benefited in many ways from from his scholarship. So what I'm saying here is in no way to be a detraction from from his his scholarship. And I would wonder today, in light of all the work done by the Grace Evangelical. Uh, society and articles published related to things like this in the last 20 years, if he would still write it this way. I think not. And I'm going to show you another another good guy that gets it real wrong on this passage too. But the purpose of this is to teach you, number one, just because you like somebody, just because somebody's really good and one of your favorites doesn't mean they always get it right. They're not God. They're not omniscient. They're not perfect. And so uh, we have to always read with perception and with clarity. So he says in the Bible Knowledge Commentary on this passage, he says the language of this verse, 
you have no where uh, Peter says you have no part or share in this ministry, uh, in this thing, logos meaning word or manner, implies Simon was not a Christian. I'm going to show you why it doesn't in a minute. Uh, for similar terminology, see Deuteronomy 12, 12, 14, 27, just as the Levites had no inheritance in the promised land. But they were still in the promised land. They were still Jews. See, he misses the point there. And he gets it close enough that it's inheritance. But inheritance doesn't equal entry into the land. Levites were allowed to enter the land, but they weren't given a portion or inheritance in the land. Um, and it wasn't a punishment. Uh, he says, the adverb perhaps does not mean God is reluctant to forgive sin. The question was whether Simon would repent of his heart's intention. But he, 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 he misses the point. Now, we're going to get to somebody who I know knows better and has probably changed his mind on this. He wrote this very, very early on. Uh, and this is uh, uh, our dear friend, Arnold Fruchtenbaum. And this is in one of his Messianic Bible study notes that uh, Ariel Ministries has put out. For those of you who don't know Arnold, Arnold founded Ariel Ministries when he came back to the United States in the early 70s after he got kicked out of Israel because he was too effective of an evangelist. And they, uh, they, they sent him packing. So he came back to San Antonio, started Ariel Ministries. And he is a brilliant, brilliant scholar and analyst. But Arnold has various flaws that uh, I, and areas where I don't necessarily agree. Um, and this is one of them. But I do think this was, some of these were written long before the gra- free grace thing came out. And let me tell you something. When I, uh, and most of you have heard me teach on John 15 and abiding in Christ, one of the things that I did when I got into that passage when I was teaching John when I first went up to Preston City Bible Church was I listened to several pastors that I really trusted who taught through that passage. And I was amazed because most of this was done in the 60s. In the 60s, there wasn't this clear, fine-tuned understanding of every detail related to free grace. Now, all these guys believed in free grace. But when you looked at John 15, they would make this statement to paragraphs later they would make this other statement and they were contradictory one would be consistent with lordship one would not every one of these pastors did that and i won't name them because you all know them and i'm not going to go there but they did that but later when as especially as a result of the work that zane hodges and others did with with grace evangelical society these things got clarified and we were we we really came to understand uh, some things and became more and more consistent in, in understanding that free grace issue. So this is what Arnold wrote. He said, the picture is of Simon sticking closely to Philip to find out the secret of his power. The question arises, what does it mean when it says that Simon believed? Now, I've always pointed out to you that everybody else that we've run across so far believed, and that's good. Nobody questions that that means that they're saved. When Peter preaches in Acts 2, in Acts 2, uh, around 40, 41, it says, and they, about 3,000 people believe. There's no doubt that they become Christians. Then in Acts 3, you have another 4,000 believed again and again and again. It's they believe. That's the response, proper response to the gospel. There's nothing in this thing to indicate that this there was not a proper belief. But Arnold says, what does it mean when it says that Simon believed? Did he become a true believer? Now, you've heard me this and say this before, and I'll say it again. You cannot find a place in the original text of Scripture where you have an uh, an adjectival or an adverbial qualification on either the noun believe, that would be an adjective, or the verb believe. Never does it say you need to be a true believer in Jesus. Not once. Now, in the English, some of the translators have added that, but it's not in the original. You don't have a single place where it says he was a true believer and he was not. It never, ever occurs. There's never a qualification. You don't have to have genuine belief or sincere belief or true belief. It's always simply you have to believe. And believe simply means to accept it as being true. You're relying upon it. It's not that you believe it's true, that that's what the Bible says. See, I believe that Charles Darwin said that men evolved from monkeys. But I don't believe that men evolved from monkeys. Those are two different statements. 
Many people believe Christianity teaches Jesus was the Son of God. Many people believe that the Bible says you've got to believe in Jesus to be saved, but they don't believe personally in Jesus to save them. Okay, Arnold goes on to say, first, what did he come to believe? Now, this is interesting. What did I say the text indicates here? When they, that is the Samaritans, believed Philip as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. Now, if you trace that all the way through Acts, it's always expressing the content of the gospel. Then Simon himself also believed. But this is what Arnold says. First, what did he come to believe? In the end, he believed that Jesus was, quote, that great power of God. That's not what the text says. If you go back to that, where that sentence is made, back in verse 10, it says um, that to whom, that is to Simon, they, that is the Samaritans, all gave heed from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the great power of God. But nowhere does it say that Simon thought that Jesus was the great power of God. That connection's never made anywhere in the text. In the, so Arnold just, I don't know where he got that. In the end, he believed that Jesus was the great power of God, not he himself. But this was not saving faith, but it's not part of the text either. The problem with Simon was that the more he watched the signs and miracles performed by Philip, the more the wonder of it all grew in his mind. Eventually, a desire developed within him to be able to do the same. However, what Simon believed did not require saving faith. To believe that Yeshua was that great power of God is not enough to save anyone. But nowhere in the text does it say he believed that Yeshua was the great power of God. It doesn't say that. So he's reading things into the text that aren't there. Uh, he concludes that one must believe that he died as our substitute, one must trust what Yeshua did on the cross for our salvation, and nothing else. See, that's the free grace gospel right there. He's got it nailed. But he messes up earlier. Now, he, this was done way, way early. This is not, not current recent material. So these kinds of things related to the gospel have really been clarified. So back to our passage. Peter said to him, Your money perish with you because you thought that the gift of God could be purchased with money. And you have neither part nor portion in this matter, in this thing, in this, for your heart is not right in the sight of God. Now, as I point out here in the asterisk, the identical terminology is used for Simon's belief as all other saving faith in Acts over 35 times. There's nothing to distinguish it. Acts 8.13 says, Then Simon himself also believed. The key is understanding the technical sense of these two words used in Acts 8.21. You have neither part, this is the word meris from meros, and portion, this is the word kleros. Kleros is the word for inheritance. Meros is the word that designated the part or portion that was given to someone in their inheritance of, uh, of the doctrine. Let's look at a couple of passages. I want you to turn to Luke 15. Luke 15. This is a great passage. Luke 15 is part of three parables, three stories Jesus tells about lost things, lost sheep, lost coin, and a lost son. First thing you should note is prior to being lost, they were all owned by the owner. That's salvation. So this isn't talking about how to become owned by the owner, how, how, how the shepherd owned the, came to own the sheep or how the woman came to own the, own the gold coin or how the lost son came to be the son of the father. It's talking about what happens when there's a break in the relationship between the shepherd and the sheep, the, pair, the, the, the owner and the coin, and the lost son. So this man has two sons. The younger of them comes to the father and says, Give me the portion. That's that word meros. Give me the portion of goods that falls to me. What does he want? He wants his share of the inheritance. The word meros was a technical term to describe in a legal will what portion went to somebody. It's not uh, the word part in English has to do with, well, so-and-so has a part in a play. That's a role. This has to do with inheritance, so we have to understand that. You, it's not that he's saying you don't have a role in this matter. He's saying you don't have a, a, a share in this matter related to inheritance, nor portion in this matter. Now, where would Peter get this terminology? Does anybody have any idea? Well, let's go to John uh, 13 for Peter's smackdown on terms of this word. I mean, and Jesus really smacks him down on this. 
This is in the upper room discourse when Jesus is teaching the importance of cleansing from sin in order to be in fellowship with God and the importance of forgiveness, which is indicated at the end when he says, um, talks about washing one another's feet. We've gone through that in detail. I don't have time to do that tonight. But uh, Peter, as we all know in this story, Peter comes along, and when the Lord comes to Peter and he's going to wash his feet, Peter says, "Uh uh-uh, Lord, not me. Not me. You can wash these other losers' feet, but not mine. Uh, You're too good for that. And Jesus then rebukes him and says, What I'm doing you do not understand now. I'll make a point later, but I'm giving you the object lesson now. But you will know after this. And Peter then says, pulls him up to every inch of his self-righteousness and says, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus says, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Meros. Same word, you have no inheritance with me. It's not saying you're not saved because he's going to say everybody here is cleaned already. They're, they're saved. That's the word cleansed. But he says, Jesus says in verse 10, he who's bathed, they've all been bathed, needs only to wash his feet, but it's completely clean, and you are clean, but not all of you. There's one of you who's a dirty, rotten sinner here that hasn't trusted in me as a Savior yet. And uh, John makes the point, he says, for he knew who would betray him, therefore he said, you are not all clean. See, it's that betrayer who's not saved. It's Judas. And so that's another use of this word. The bottom line is when you're saved, you have an eternal destiny in heaven. But God promises certain rewards. They're incentivized blessings for believers to be obedient and to grow to maturity. This is what 1 Corinthians 3 and the judgment seat of Christ is all about, is that if we walk with the Lord and we grow and mature, then there are additional blessings and rewards that God is going to distribute to us in heaven. But if we don't, we're going to lose them. And what's the, the difference is, are we going to live on the basis of God and his word and dependence on the Holy Spirit? Or are we going to do it on the basis of legalism, on the basis of thinking we can buy God's favor or earn God's favor? That's the point that uh, Peter's making here, that, that, that Simon is, is still operating on his unbelieving mentality that, that he can buy the favor of God. And Peter is saying, if, if you continue to operate that way, you're not going to have any inheritance in the kingdom. You're just going to be a failure as a believer. You're going to get there, but you're going to be like that last category that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 3. You're going to get there, but you're going to kind of smell like fire. You're going to be saved, but you're not going to have anything in terms of rewards. So what's the solution? He's addressing an unbeliever. He doesn't say believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? He's already saved. Now, I brought with me commentary by Stephen Gare. Nobody here probably knows who Stephen Gare is. Stephen Gare is also a Dallas Seminary graduate, but he is uh, Arnold uh, Arnold Fruchtenbaum's successor, Arnold's retired now. He's still teaching and doing other things. But Arnold has retired from being the executive director of Ariel Ministries, and Stephen Gere, uh, who is a Messianic Jew, has become the uh, now the uh, director, executive director of Ariel Ministries. And he wrote a commentary on the book of Acts, and he says he takes the same position that I've explained here, that Peter wasn't trying to tell Simon, at this point, how to get saved. Uh, he says, note that Peter did not prevail upon Simon to trust Christ. Simon's faith is assumed. In other words, he re- here's Stephen recognizing that, I mean, Stephen Gare recognizing Simon's already saved. <coughs> so uh, Simon's solution uh, that Peter says is repent. But Simon's not impressed with that, verse 24. And... Uh, he just says, pray to the Lord for me that none of these things which you've spoken may come upon me. So he doesn't sound real impressed. He doesn't uh, seem to change, and that's the last we hear of it. So, uh, but does that mean he's not a believer? No, there are a lot of people we never hear from again. We never hear from John again. Does that mean he's not a, I mean, in Acts, we never hear from him again. Does that mean he's not a believer? No. There are a lot of people we never hear from again. We never hear from the other five who were mentioned as the seven chosen in Acts 6. We don't hear from any of them again in the book of Acts. Does that mean they weren't believers? No, it doesn't. It just means that they don't play a role in Luke's narrative. So, verse 25, So when they had testified, that is, Peter and John had testified and preached the word, and that is should not be translated preached. 
It's the word laleo in Greek, spoken the word. See, now they're moving from evangelism to teaching more about what the word of God teaches. When they testify and preach the word of the Lord, they return to Jerusalem preaching, ah, evangelism, evangelizo here, preaching the gospel in many villages of the Samaritans. Now, I didn't get very far tonight. I thought I would get into the next section, which is a section dealing with the uh, Ethiopian uh, eunuch, but that takes place down south here in the area uh, bordering on Judea, so we'll start that uh, next time, okay? Father, thank you for this opportunity to study your word, to get a chance to clarify our understanding of the gospel, that salvation is truly by faith and faith alone in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. Uh, nothing is added before or after salvation. It is simply trusting him, believing in him, believing he is who he claimed to be, the eternal second person of the Trinity who died on the cross for our sins, the promised Messiah of the Old Testament who came to pay that penalty as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Father, we pray that you'd help us to understand these things, to clarify them in our own thinking, that we may be more sure and certain of the gospel in which we have believed. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.